those of you who, who may not know me, uh, my name is Ryan Yoho. I'm one of the lay elders here at Grace Bible Church, and it's a, a privilege to be able to bring you God's Word this morning. Let's uh, open in prayer, please. Creator God, our Father in heaven, as we are fed by your Word this morning, please, please work with power in the hearts and minds of your people. Uh, open our eyes to the awesomeness of Christ's gracious and complete authority, and please just strengthen our faith accordingly. And in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. amen. So today I'm going to share with you a bit about what God's Word says about authority, and, and specifically what it says about Christ's authority. But before we do that, um, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned to my home group that uh, I was going to be doing a sermon this morning after Christmas, and, and they were all very encouraging. Um, Josh Smith, I told you this was coming, in particular, encouraged me. Josh is a, a well-known encourager, right up there with Barnabas. And anyways, Josh strongly encouraged me to start with a joke, because he likes jokes. So, here goes a joke about authority. The world's foremost authority on wasps is walking down the street when something catches his eye in the window of an antique shop. It's an old vinyl record and it's, it's labeled with this odd title, Wasp Noises from Around the World. Intrigued, he goes into the shop and asks if he can listen to it. He's always eager to see if he might learn something new. And the shop assistant is happy to play it for him. So he pops it onto an ancient turntable, and after listening to the first track for a while, the world's foremost authority on wasps is a bit confused. I don't recognize any of these noises, and I'm the world's foremost authority on wasps. Can you play the next track, please? The assistant obliges, skips the needle onto the next track. After another minute, the world's foremost authority on wasps is still confused. He shakes his head, says, it's no good. I, I don't recognize any of these wasps. The assistant takes the record off the turntable and peers at it intently at the label. And then he flips it over and says, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I had it on the B side, <laughs> not the wasp side. So that's a bad joke. It's also over the heads of anyone under a certain age. So you may need to talk to your parents or even your grandparents on that one. Um, but to redeem myself a bit, I promise we'll make some use of that later on and, and, and tie it back in. This morning, we're going to take a more serious look at the subject of authority and specifically the awesome reality of Christ's authority. It's a big topic, so here's, here's kind of a roadmap for what we're going to do. First, we're going to take a, a, a whirlwind tour of what the Gospel of Matthew has to say on authority, and then we're going to dive more deeply into um, the story of, of the centurion's servant in Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13. And then we'll wrap up by answering the question, what kind of authority does Christ have? So first, the, the overview tour, the whirlwind tour. In Matthew's gospel, the topic of Christ's authority comes up repeatedly. Um, the very first time it's used, the word authority is used in Matthew, is in, it's at the end of chapter 7. 
and uh, in, in verses 28 and 29. Here's what it says. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. It says, when, when Jesus finished these sayings, what, what sayings did he just finish? The Sermon on the Mount. We should know this one because we just spent 16 weeks going through chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus finished that sermon, when he finished all of that teaching, these verses tell us how the people reacted. They were astonished. And why were they astonished? because they had never heard someone teach with such authority. Jesus taught them things that they had never really heard or, or kind of fully understood before. Things like the fact that anger was just as sinful as murder. Things like, I'm supposed to love not just my neighbor, but, but also my enemy. Not only did he unpack these new insights, though, he also just sounded different. While, while their scribes may have taught about the truth uh, found in scriptures, Jesus didn't teach about the truth. He simply taught the truth directly. Um, unlike their scribes, he, he was teaching with a kind of authority that, that the audience hadn't seen before. And so that's the first mention of Christ's authority in Matthew. The next one comes soon after in the next chapter, chapter 8, and that's what we'll be looking at a little bit later today. But that particular passage in chapter 8 is really part of a larger narrative uh, that spans all of chapter 8 and chapter 9 in Matthew. In those two chapters, following the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, performs a series of 10 miracles that Matthew captures in his gospel. Most of these miracles are, are healing miracles. Jesus healed, healed leprosy, he healed fevers, he healed paralysis and bleeding. He healed two blind men, and he also healed a man who could not speak. He healed people from demon possession, and he even healed somebody from death. He raised up a, a little girl who had recently died. And in the middle of all of these healing miracles, he also did another kind of miracle. Uh, we, we, we briefly touched on it in the last song we sang. He, he and his disciples were in a massive storm. And when the disciples became afraid, Jesus told the, the wind and the waves to stop being so windy and wavy, right? He calmed the storm with just a word. In one of those miracle healings, Jesus makes very plain why he was doing these. At the beginning of chapter 9, some people brought their, their friend who was paralyzed to Jesus and, and, and clearly were looking for them, looking for, for, for possible healing. Let's pick it up in, in chapter 9, verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, 
Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So we see authority there as well. And unfortunately, because this is a whirlwind tour of Matthew, we, haven't, we, can't, we can't dwell here too long. Um, but the point is clear in this passage. First, the first thing Jesus did was to tell the man that his sins were forgiven, tell the man and his friends that their sins were forgiven. But in order to reassure them that he actually had the authority to forgive sins, and because the, the sort of pot shots coming in from the scribes, he also demonstrated that authority more visibly by healing the man, telling him to get up and go home. There are other references to Christ's authority in Matthew, but I do want to wrap up this, this quick tour uh, with perhaps the, the most well-known one. Matthew chapter 28 uh, concludes with, with something we call usually the, the Great Commission. So Matthew 28, starting in verse 18 to the end, says, And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here at the end of Matthew, Jesus is claiming all authority in heaven and on earth. Not just some, but all. And, and with that authority, he then tells his followers to go about making disciples. Uh, and, and he also assures them that he will be with them always. We, we earlier saw how Jesus used the healing miracles to point to his authority, um, for, to, to especially the authority to forgive, here now we see this greatest possible assertion of, of authority, and it comes on the heels of, of the greatest of all miracles of Christ's uh, resurrection. So that's the whirlwind tour of, of Christ's authority in Matthew, and now we can dive into chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. And this particular story is the healing of a centurion's servant. So we'll read through this passage and, and then unpack it. Chapter 8, verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, 
With no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So a centurion was a, a Roman military officer. Uh, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 troops, and they were grouped into, into 60 units of about 100 soldiers each. Uh, the officer in charge of each group of 100 soldiers was the centurion. It's a, it's a Latin thing, right? So there's 100 cents to a dollar, 100 years in a century, and 100 soldiers underneath a centurion. Centurions form, formed the, the backbone of the Roman army, and, and, and in particular, the leadership for a, for a legion. Uh, it's kind of like a centurion's very roughly analogous to a company commander in the US Army uh, who's part of a larger brigade. A centurion had command of the soldiers in his unit who were under him, but the centurion was also under the command of his superior officers in the legion. So as we see in, in back at the beginning of the passage, when Jesus entered Capernaum, this nearby centurion approached him. And apparently the centurion knew something of Jesus' teaching and also of his, of his healing uh, powers. And so he reached out to Jesus to tell him about his servant, who was back home, paralyzed, and suffering terribly. And Jesus said he would come and heal the servant. That seems straightforward, but there's a little bit of complexity to it because the centurion was Roman. He was not Jewish. Likely the, the servant uh, in question was, was not a Jew either. And that presented a couple of challenges. <clears throat> First, a custom and law around uncleanness prevented a Jew and a, certainly a rabbi teacher from, from even entering the home of a, of a non-Jew, a Gentile. Such a thing just wasn't done. Though Jesus did show on multiple occasions, he, he wasn't too worried about what, other thought, what others thought uh, he should do in terms of cleanness. But the other challenge in view here with the centurion's request was that Christ's ministry was aimed almost entirely at the Jewish people, at the people of Israel. And that's not because Christ's kingdom is exclusionary. In fact, we'll see that that's not the case at all. But it was more because Jesus was, was kind of doing things in order, sequentially. It just wasn't yet time for the gospel to be proclaimed to the Gentiles. That would come later, especially with the ministry of, of Paul that we see in Acts. Nonetheless, Jesus had been approached by this centurion, who was Roman, and, and clearly needed help. And so Jesus indicated that he would come and heal him despite these, these challenges. And that's when the centurion responds in a way that, that just amazes Jesus. The centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. The officer in the Roman army addressed Jesus by using the word Lord 
to the centurion, Caesar was supposed to be Lord. It's not one of these Hebrew people that were under the rule of Rome, and certainly not this, this Jesus, a son of a poor carpenter. Yet the centurion calls him Lord, gives him this title of, of acknowledging an authority, and declares that, that he's not worthy of having Jesus come to his home. The centurion recognizes Jesus' superiority, and, and it clearly can't be a recognition of some sort of cultural or social superiority. It's something else. This response just indicates an amazing amount and, and an appropriate amount of humility because the centurions discerned something about Jesus and Jesus' true position and true authority. The centurion continues, saying, you don't need to come to my house because you could just say the word and, and my servant would be healed. No need to even come, no need to lay hands on physically. Just stay where you are and speak the healing and the paralyzed servant would be, would be healed. And the centurion goes on to explain why he believes that that's the case. He, he's drawing from his own military experience when he says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. The centurion says he knows what it's like to obey orders because he's under a superior authority, the superior officers in the legion. He also knows what it's like to give orders and, and have his own soldiers obey. They, they respond based on his authority as their commander. But think about what the centurion's actually saying here. He understands that Jesus has the ability, the authority, to command what? To command illness, to command sickness, to leave a person. He knows that Jesus can command the paralysis to leave his paralyzed servant. And he asks Jesus to do that. No one can do that. No one then and no one now can, can make people get better just by saying so. But Jesus could. And the centurion knew it. People and their illnesses are under Christ's authority. The centurion knew that for Jesus, it was, it was like the centurion telling a soldier to, to go and take a piece of mail to the next camp over or telling a servant to come, bring me some water. These were routine commands for the centurion. And he understood that for Jesus, healing the servant who wasn't even there was, was just as routine, just as straightforward. It's an extraordinary response for a Gentile. It's an extraordinary response for anybody at this point in Christ's ministry, especially. Jesus, therefore, marveled at what the centurion had said. He was amazed at the centurion's insight into himself. The centurion had a very simple, complete belief in Jesus' authority, and Jesus' reply says it all. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Centurion knew that Jesus was Lord, that he had great power and authority, and he trusted that he would or could exercise that power and authority just by saying so.
That was a kind of faith Jesus had not seen yet, not even among his first disciples, which included men like Peter and James and John. Seeing this Roman's faith then prompted Jesus to to talk about the eternal implications of that faith. First he said, this is the good news part, first he said, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that in heaven, the the great patriarchs of Israel will be joined by faithful Gentiles, people like this centurion, people coming from nations east and west. Even though right now his ministry is primarily to the Jews, the gospel is for everyone, and it, it offers hope to people from every nation. Everybody has opportunity to believe and receive eternal life in God's kingdom. Everyone is equally welcome at the table. But then Jesus also foretells the the tragic news that most Jews will reject this good news. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sons of the kingdom, that means the ethnic descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Jewish people, they will not be welcome at the feast table of heaven. Those who are relying on their heritage, on their ancestry, will not be welcome. Obviously, some Jews, including disciples like Peter, James, and John, and and others who are are hearing and and ultimately believing in Christ, they would would believe the gospel and, and, and be granted access to the kingdom. But most would reject Jesus' offer of salvation, and they would be cast into the outer darkness. So the outer darkness um, is is something uh, that that Christ describes uh, multiple times in the course of Matthew, often using the the phrasing of of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, It is the destiny for unbelievers, both Jews and Gentiles, a place of eternal tears, of suffering, and of anguish. It's what we call hell. After this, after this sort of aside, probably more directed towards his disciples than to the centurion, Jesus tells the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed, and instantly the servant was healed. Because of the centurion's faith, he is welcomed to the kingdom of heaven, and as he believed, his servant has been healed with just a word, the authoritative word of Jesus Christ. So now we get to our question. What kind of authority does Jesus have? We've seen it in action, but how would we start to describe it? And in one sense, the answer is simple because we already talked about it in Matthew 28. He's got all authority. That's that's a kind of authority, all of it. Um, God the Father has given God the Son complete authority. But it is helpful, I think, to to unpack that a bit further. Uh, So what kind of authority does Jesus have? Jesus has authority over creation. Jesus has authority in righteousness and in forgiveness And Jesus is the authority on things yet to come. 
This is what I want us to try to take away today as we think about Christ's authority. First, Jesus has authority over creation. John chapter 1 starts off with a very famous passage, and it calls Jesus the Word, and it says that all things were made through him, the Word. All creation was made by Jesus. Nothing was made without him. Once we understand Christ to be the creator, it kind of makes sense that he has authority over the stuff he created, right? Including us. He took away the, the servant's paralysis from a distance with just a word. But healing a man with a word should not surprise us when we know that all of mankind was created from nothing with the word. And that's that, it's that same kind of authority that we see then again and again in all those healing miracles, including the one we looked at. Christ has authority, not just over people, but also over storms and wind and waves. He healed blind men and brought people back to life simply by telling them, you should see again, live again, with just a word. When we acknowledge that, and when we trust Christ's authority over creation, it has some amazing implications for us. It means that even in a fallen world, Jesus is still in control. When things seem out of control, he has command over his creation. Furthermore, it points us towards a, a type of hope. That same authority that we're talking about, authority over creation, is the power behind the promise that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. For believers, the old has passed away, the new has come. We've been created anew by the Creator, reborn to new life. And with that truth, as we grasp and cling to that truth, that the storms and trials of life are no longer cause for fear. The temptations in the flesh that, that we face, they're no longer controlling. And the physical frailties and illnesses that we, that we face, those things pale in comparison to the truth that we have new life in him and we have hope in what is yet to come. The Bible makes clear that, that Jesus did not take on flesh and walk this earth primarily to do healing miracles, but those miracles were done to point the way to the promise we have of enduring healing. Um, and they were also done for a second reason, to open our eyes to what he was teaching and, and really who he is. So that takes us to the second dimension of authority we want to look at this morning. Regarding his teaching, Jesus has authority, and he has authority in, in the incredibly broad areas of righteousness and forgiveness. He declares what is true. It's through him that, that we know what's right, right? That's, that's our source. We don't make it up on our own. We don't reason our way through it. What is right and what is wrong comes from Jesus Christ. His is the standard of perfect righteousness that we are held to. Remember, on the Sermon on the Mount, 
When Jesus said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He went on to teach some things that were unrighteous, things like insulting people. Nope, that's reason enough for condemnation. Things like lust is just as bad as adultery and makes us worthy of hell. The people who heard this message from Jesus were astonished because he was teaching with an authority about what was right and what is righteousness that they had never seen or heard before. And furthermore, that authority is, is not just on righteousness, but it it's also points us towards forgiveness, Christ's authority on forgiveness. Remember the, the story of how Jesus healed the servant and the, uh, the paralyzed man in chapter 9 of Matthew. The very first thing he did was not heal him, but forgive his sins. And then, in order that everyone understood that he had the authority to do that, he healed the man. He healed the man so that we would all see and all know that he also has the authority to forgive our sins, to save people from the curse of hell. We are not forgiven because we live up to God's perfect standard. We're forgiven because we have faith in Jesus' authority to forgive us based on his perfection. We have faith that he is, in fact, our creator, the author of life, with the power to, to heal and to restore to life with just a word. That's what we're believing in. We have faith that his forgiveness is sufficient, that he removes our sin through his death on the cross, and he makes us worthy of heaven because he is worthy. Jesus recognized the faith of the centurion and said, that kind of faith is what gains people access to the kingdom of heaven. And he should know because he's the authority. He's the authority in righteousness and in forgiveness. A quick aside before we go on. Um, these days, we, we may describe someone as an authority. Uh, maybe they're an authority on, on such and such a topic, right? In this sense, an authority is, is kind of synonymous with being an expert. Uh, they're really smart. They've studied a lot. They generally know what they're talking about, like the world's foremost authority on wasps, right? He was an authority because he thought he knew what he was talking about. Here's another example. Uh, let's say that you wanted to hear from an authority on the, the deep Christian themes found in the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, along with six other books in the Narnia series. And if you wanted an authoritative view on, on those books, on Narnia, you might read, let's see if I still have it here. You might read this book. It's called Inside Narnia by Devin Brown. Dr. Brown's a scholar and a professor. He's devoted his entire career to studying, teaching, and writing about the works of C.S. Lewis. He's an authority. But you know who else is an authority on Narnia? 
C.S. Lewis. Because, why? Because he's the author of those books. This book is a collection of letters by C.S. Lewis, many of which describe his intent and his thinking in writing the Narnia books. This is the true authority on Narnia because he's the author. Jesus teaches what is right and righteous for man and why and how we must be forgiven. And he's authoritative in doing so because he is our author. He created everything. And therefore he knows us and he knows what we need the same way an author knows the characters he's bringing to life in a book. True authority is, is not merely positional command or expertise. That can be derived or learned. True authority belongs only to the author. And the Bible calls Jesus the author of life and the author of our salvation. Okay, that takes us to the third aspect of Christ's authority, and we'll wrap up here. Jesus is the authority on things yet to come. And we see this anytime he says anything about what will happen, these will statements. We saw that in our passage today. Many will come from east and west and recline at table in the kingdom of heaven. Those without faith will be thrown into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These things haven't happened yet, at least not for you and for me, but they will happen because Jesus said they would. The authority, the same authority that commands creation and that forgives sins is the same completely trustworthy authority that tells us what is still to come. He is the, the author of that future. Thinking back again to, to using the, the Narnia example, there was a series of seven books. C.S. Lewis knew what was going to happen in the last book of Narnia before it was written, before it was published, because he was the one writing it. He was the author. Jesus is the author of things yet to come. And so as we close... Just consider a few of the things that Jesus has said will happen. These should, should give you great hope and confidence. If you trust and believe that Jesus is Lord and that you need his forgiveness in order to be rescued from the outer darkness of hell and, and, and granted eternal life and a seat at the feasting table in heaven, if you believe those things, then we also must believe these things. So here's Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And lastly, 
passage, Matthew 25, 31 to 34. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These verses speak to what will be, events that have not yet happened, or perhaps are things in progress, but not yet at their glorious conclusion. When we speak about our faith, our faith is all about what Christ has already done for us by dying on the cross. It's also all about who we are as believers, created anew in him, forgiven. But our faith is also all about what Jesus will be doing, what is still yet to come. Jesus has authority over creation. He has authority and righteousness and forgiveness. And Jesus is the authority on things yet to come. The more that we understand these truths the stronger our faith will be and the greater our joy will be in this world even as we look forward to eternity in the Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son to reveal to us more about you and your character to speak truth to us about our need for salvation, for dying on the cross, and for being raised up on the third day to show us the way to, what it, to the eternal life that we have available through him. I just pray this morning as, as people are hearing this, if they are believers, Strengthen their faith. Give us an absolute and simple confidence in the authority of Jesus Christ. For those who, who are not yet trusting in Jesus as our Savior, open their eyes. Give them the faith that will grant them access to the feast table of your kingdom and help them understand the truth that all those who do not trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, will be cast into the outer darkness. Help that motivate us as we engage with, with those who need to hear this good news that Christ has come to rescue us, and he has the authority to do so. We pray these things in your name. Amen.